Hey, it's Mark. This week marks the debut of MMM's Best Places to Work, Class of 2023. The winners include the most well-regarded firms in healthcare marketing, spanning three categories, from small and mid-sized to large agencies. As is often the case when accolade lists such as this make their debut on our website, we get a lot of questions about how to get involved. We know there are always more companies deserving of recognition. And so, while the judging experience is still relatively fresh in our minds, we've assembled a How to Win style podcast that includes tips from some of the judges, namely MMM's editor-in-chief Larry Dobrow and myself. We'll provide insight into the jury process, highlight some of the most important criteria for helping an entry stand out, discuss what employment trends we saw reflected in the submissions, and pinpoint a few areas where we think firms can seek to distinguish themselves as the best places to work. Alesh is here with a health policy update. Hey Mark, today I'll discuss how the reauthorization of PEPFAR, or the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, has stalled in Congress, and what this might mean for the U.S. Global HIV Initiative. And Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? This week we're talking about Project CASC's online auction to support rare disease research. Lesh is going to give us a rundown of the top 10 diabetes influencers on TikTok, and we provide an update on Bronnie James's recovery from cardiac arrest over the summer. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. So normally on the podcast, you've gotten to hear my voice and Mark's voice and Lesh's voice, but there is another very important member of the MMM team that we're delighted to have on the show this week, Mr. Larry Dobrow, the editor-in-chief. Larry, how are you doing today? Doing great. Um, I definitely put myself at the uh, bottom quadrant of the uh, four-person team, so it's, uh, it's great to be here, and hopefully I won't drag you guys down too much. It's good because we agree with that ranking as well. But we brought you on here for a very important purpose, which is to walk us through the best places to work class of 2023. Why don't you take us through this year's class and then we can get into the best practices in terms of how you can win best places to work. Well, it's probably best to start by going back a tiny bit. We've done best places to work for a couple of years now. Um, It's one of the most popular programs that we do. I believe this year we had somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 70 or 80 companies vying for the uh, 12 spots among our places to work. So it's not a, you know, it's not a participation trophy type exercise. Uh, What we do is over the summer, we reach out, we say, hey, you know, we're opening this up. Companies indicate their interest in participating, um, fill out a information form. And after that, surveys go out to their employees, um, high up in the company, low down in the company, everywhere in between. And we get a pretty granular look at a lot of different factors, you know, not just benefits and pay, but also culture, the ability to advance um, mentorship. It's a pretty complete picture of what makes some of these companies special and uh, what distinguishes them from the rest of the group. It's interesting because this seems to really tie in with a lot of what we cover in the Agency 100, which obviously comes out in June when you talk about workplace and culture and things of that nature. And we'll dig deeper into that. But I wanted to bring Mark into the conversation because you were one of the judges, Mark. What really stood out to you when you were going through the submissions in terms of the ones that really stood shoulders and above the rest? Yeah, thanks, Jack. And, um, um, you know, as as Larry mentioned, uh, this is not a a one-dimensional exercise. You know, uh, we have ourselves, myself and Larry, internal judges, then we have external judges. And, uh, you know, some of the feedback that we received this year was um, that, uh, you know, going forward, uh, we should try to roll the, 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 
calculus, if you will, up into a, a 10 point scale next year. Right now it's kind of a, a five point scale, but spread across like, you know, a couple of dozen different metrics. Um, and, and that they would find a, a composite number that kind of rolled up every entry into one number, uh, a more simple exercise. But that kind of speaks to the complexity of this. You know, I try to play alchemist, you know, in, in the way I approach it in terms of, I take a couple of data of those data points, say salary, uh, and how um, agencies say they treat their employees along with um, the employee response rate, um, you know, how many people actually responded from each company. And I try to come up with my own composite. And from there, I narrow it down to kind of a short list in each category and then delve into the open-ended comments, of which there are always a lot, you know, that we get. And um, so, so you know, to answer the question, you know, the, the, the ones that stood out had a lot of response rate. They did well uh, in, in the composite, you know, data points uh, and their open-ended comments were more than just um, a dry exercise. You know, the, the people actually said what makes those firms stand out and what makes them character, you know, what characterizes them. And Larry, from your perspective, how has it changed in terms of the submissions you've seen over the years? Obviously, we've gone through the pandemic over the past three or so years. There was the great resignation that really took effect from 2021 through 2022. There's been a lot of changing dynamics in terms of workplaces. What has stood out to you in terms of when you were judging? Well, first and foremost, we probably ought to revisit the notion of the great resignation. You know, I'm a little bit of a skeptic in that regard. Did it actually happen? I'm not entirely sure, but that's a that's a different podcast, right? What uh, jumped out at me this year was that it seemed a little bit less, I don't want to say scripted because that implies kind of bad faith on the entrance, but it seemed a little more freewheeling, really. Um, the comments this year weren't just, okay, here's what our hybrid policy is. You know, Here's what we're doing to affect the same good degree of work-life balance that we tried to affect during the pandemic. This year, people said they cited a lot of different factors. Um, there's also a little bit of fatigue, I think, with some of the most common workplace offerings. You know, whether it's you know we're going to have some Tai Chi classes, you know we're going to have happy hour up on the roof, you know roof deck every Friday. People want more, um, but people want more in terms of their career. They don't necessarily want to be treated to those little kind of mini perks, which you know some of the companies seem to think are a lot more important than maybe they really are. You know, during the pandemic, we saw on this survey, employees kind of write in comments like, the CEO delivered a box lunch to my home as a show of dedication and, and wanting to maintain the company culture despite the isolation of lockdowns. That was 2020, 2021. Uh, and we saw, you know, uh, whether or whether we saw it or not, as Larry said, the great resignation. Uh, fast forward to 2023, and there's been a cooling of the job market as reflected in the salary survey, which we just wrapped up as well. That's debuting, I think, in this issue too. And there we saw a flattening of salaries. We saw longer time in position and a drop in job seeking intent. So in this year's best places to our comments, I think that was what was reflected there was kind of a, re a return to the classic indicators of retention. Like I've been here nine years, I would retire here or, you know, write this company on my mm -hmm. epitaph, that kind of thing. It's interesting to hear you both talk about kind of the stickiness that we've seen from COVID versus maybe some of the fads um, and different dynamics that were at play during that obviously uh, crisis fueled period of time. We'll get back to the conversation in a moment, but first I wanted to mention GoodRx. GoodRx HCP media solutions help pharma brands get to the point where prescription decisions are made. Find out how to put GoodRx in your 2024 HCP marketing plan. Visit goodrx.com solutions today. I want to go back, Larry, though, because we kind of teased it at the beginning in terms of 
how you can win. Because I know that's probably what a lot of people are tuned in for is like, hey, I wasn't listed this year or maybe I'm interested in entering next year. What would be your advice in terms of maybe standing out among the pack? This is probably the dumbest and most obvious thing I can say, but the way to win is to actually be a best place to work. Um, I know that sounds fairly intuitive, but it's amazing that um, one of the things that jumped out at me was a lot of companies want to be a best place. They, they say they're a best place to work, because they want to be a best place to work. Um, there were, you know, in their own language versus the language that came from their comments, the comments from their employees are two entirely, entirely different things. Um, you sensed that those companies were the ones that maybe tried to stage manage the process a little bit. And again, this is me reading into it. Um, you know, I don't know if Mark had the same, same feeling, but a lot of companies just sort of figured like, well, you know, we think we're great. So the rest of the world's going to think we're great. You got to prove it. You know, you have to actually say here is where we are different. And especially within the agency world, there's maybe a little bit of a homogeneity setting in. Um, I think, Right now, as you know, Mark said, the job climate is very different than it was when we did this last year. And you know, you got to stand out. If you want to stand out, you know, you have to do something a little bit different. Um, you know, companies are still trying to find a certain set of employees. You know, people within health media, people in the data world. Um, I think our new big hot uh, title that we saw a lot this year was prompt engineer. You know, so uh, all the uh, kids playing around with ChatGPT. But for the most part. You know, companies needed to show what they were specifically, how they were different. Um, I'm thinking about one of our small company honorees. I mean, it almost made the place sound like it was run, you know, from the bottom up. Um, and I mean that as a compliment. People that were lower on the food chain had comments that said, you know, I feel that if I have an idea, I can get it done. You know, not just bring it up and be heard and, you know, get like the little pat on the shoulder and a cookie later, but actually affect change. That struck me as pretty important. And, you know, again, I realize it's not possible in large organizations, especially ones that are global, but hey, there's a model, right? Larry, I thought you were going to say, you know, the, the best way to win is to enter. <laughs> well, that helps. <laughs> as my reductionist self uh, wants to mention. Um, so I would obviously recommend that as well. Um, some other things just to, you know, piggyback on what Larry mentioned, get out the vote. You know, the more responses we see, the better. Absolutely. We don't expect a ton of responses for a small agency. Obviously, that, that would be odd. But if there's a small number of responses for a large one, then that says something about employee engagement at your firm. Um, encourage candor. As, again, as Larry said, you know, tell us what makes you stand out when, when explaining why your staffers feel this is a great place to work. Authenticity and empathy really shines through in the open-ended responses. On the flip side, a lack of authenticity is al also pretty obvious. And, you know, part two of that would be, you know, yes, your staff will say what's on their mind from their fears like layoffs to what motivates them to be loyal, productive teammates. Uh, like availability of training, a strong sense of community, but also the it factor. I'll call it that. Maybe you're a little bit out there, you know, a little quirky. And that's obviously something that you want to come through loud and clear. So again, candor is very important. And, and we look for differentiators as, as judges. You know, is diversity your calling card? Uh, the ability to uh, have staff, you know, bring their best selves to work. Again, encourage them to let us know what makes you stand out. You know, one other thing, fun factor. Uh, one of our judges, our external judges, said that that was really important to them. You know, we ask, you know, what's the climate like at the agency? Is it stuffy? Is it snarky? You know, is it is, is more of a camaraderie, you know, a thing? Uh, we also ask about fun. 
Uh, and that, you know, if you can create an atmosphere that does great work and it's also fun, that's a very powerful combination. Um, and, and again, as Larry mentioned, how, um, you know, vertically integrated, so to speak, is the agency in terms of the accessibility of senior leaders, you know, that for, for that ground up kind of feedback and input to, to take place? Is there personalized coaching? That sort of thing. So. I am curious. I wanted to ask both of you, this was kind of a reflection of where the industry has gone through COVID and obviously through this year. But when you look at forward looking trends or emerging trends, is there anything that stands out to you in terms of workplace dynamics when you were judging? I think, you know, and Mark just touched on this in his response, but uh, transparency, um, everybody wants to feel like they're getting straight answers from the people who are leading them. Um, again, that probably sounds pretty obvious, but in many companies, clearly based on the results that we saw, the uh, comments from employees, that wasn't happening. You know, people still find out way too much through the grapevine, through Slack groups, through whatever else. You know, if you want to be a company that really resonates with a wide swath of people, tell them tell them what they need to know. Tell them honestly. You know, if you screw up, you say, "Hey, we screwed up here. Here's what we're doing to fix it." Everybody likes people that own their mistakes. And I would say, uh, you know, the next frontier uh, clearly is diversity. You know, um, no one seemed to be good at promoting non-white people to senior roles. Uh, at least it took our survey. And we know uh, from our pre previous survey research that while the industry has made great strides in gender equality, um, in, in terms of representation, not in terms of the pay gap that in fact widened on this year's salary survey. Uh, so companies still need to keep the pedal to the metal in terms of making sure there's equal pay for equal work. But they also need to make sure that they're continuing to widen their recruitment lenses and make, making sure that they're bringing in continually, you know, non-white people, you know, people with ethnic, uh, racial, uh, sexual, gen, you know, gender diversity uh, in, into their ranks uh, to, to make it a true reflection of the, uh, you know, America that the healthcare industry serves. The effort is clearly there. People are trying. Um, they're just not getting there yet. And until they do, I think companies are going to continue to get dinged for that. It's interesting to hear both of you talk about, obviously, where there's been so much progress in the workplace, but clearly outlining where there is room for improvement. It's been a really interesting discussion. I hope for our audience as they pour through the results, they're able to listen to this and understand the thought process that you and the other judges went through. I want to throw it back to you just for some parting remarks in terms of if there's any other advice or thoughts on this best places to work rankings that you want to impart to the audience. I'm not sure there really needs to be a post-mortem, but you know, certainly in, you know, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be hearing about them uh, right around the time this publishes. But you know, there are going to be companies that are upset they weren't named one of them. Maybe they were last year and they're not again this year. I'd say take, take a look back over the last 12 months. What were some of the things that you did differently? Um, what were some of the hiring practices that were changed or maybe not changed? Um, you know, a little bit of self-analysis is never a terrible thing. I would just add to, uh, to that, uh, that, again, to emphasize that the judging process is a very deliberate one. Uh, it's you know comprised of both internal and external members, um, and you know which is you know a check on on all these other things. Um, and um, you know we hope everybody enjoys uh, reading the final report and the twelve agencies that made the cut. Uh, you know we feel um, are uh, you know well deserving. Absolutely. 
Well, I appreciate you, Larry, making your uh, biannual visit to the podcast. We'll, <laughs> we'll re-enlist you when the time comes, but appreciate your insights and certainly encourage our audience who are listening to this, go check out the best places to work rankings on our website. That's mmm-online.com. And check out the other great content that we're posting on the site and other magazine material that's going to be coming out before the end of the year. Thank you, Larry, again, for joining us. And thank you, Mark, for your judging as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Congress failed to reauthorize funding for the U.S. Global HIV Initiative known as PEPFAR at the end of September, leaving the program in jeopardy moving into 2024. PEPFAR, which was passed in 2003 under the George W. Bush administration, had historically seen bipartisan support, and it has saved some 25 million lives since then, according to the New York Times. But within the last year, some Republicans have raised opposition to the program, arguing that the White House was using it to provide abortions globally. Republican Representative Chris Smith led PEPFAR's opposition in Congress, arguing that it had been, quote, reimagined, hijacked by the Biden administration to empower pro-abortion international non-governmental agencies deviating from its life-affirming work. But supporters of the initiative, as well as HIV advocates, have slammed Republican opposition in Congress's failure to reauthorize it. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller noted that, quote, the fact that Congress did not reauthorize the program sends a message to partners around the world that we are backing down from our leadership in ending HIV AIDS as a public health threat. Robbie Torbay, president and CEO of Project Hope, wrote in a recent blog post that the reauthorization of PEPFAR is, quote, essential to ensure we meet the global goal of ending the AIDS epidemic by 2030. Torbay also argued that PEPFAR had benefits beyond fighting the AIDS epidemic, as it's an established system that could be used to address other emerging diseases in future pandemics. For example, PEPFAR has been used in response to COVID-19, flu, and Ebola. U.S. Senator Ben Cardin, meanwhile, recently penned an op-ed on MSNBC, noting that, quote, PEPFAR has become the latest casualty in America's culture war on abortion, and urged Congress to reauthorize it moving into 2024. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMNM. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien back to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark, we have a couple of stories this week that didn't make the cut, including Supernatural star Mark Shepard experiencing six heart attacks before EMTs brought him back to life. And actress Shannon Doherty told People Magazine that she is battling stage four breast cancer that has spread to her bones. But we start this segment by talking about Project Cask, a nonprofit foundation that's currently hosting an online art auction to raise awareness for Cask, a rare genetic disease that has less than 300 documented cases worldwide. 27 artists, including Can Lion winners and Emmy nominees, have contributed their work for Project Cask's motto, Rare as Unicorns, Strong as Lions, as well as their mascot slash spirit animal, the Leocorn, to the Ultra Rare Collection. This initiative kicked off with an online auction on November 30th, and Project Cask held an in-person art gallery in New York City this past Saturday. Project Cask said 100% of profits from the auction will fund research to treat and cure cask gene disorders. I think it's interesting, and Mark and Lesh, I want to bring into the conversation the idea of using art to raise awareness for 
rare diseases. Over the summer, I had written about Boehringer Ingelheim collaborating with the Fashion Institute of Technology, which is right by our offices in Chelsea, uh, as part of their Rare Disease Day initiative to raise awareness of their unwearable collection. And it seems like this is another way of, of healthcare-related organizations saying, hey, we can use art to bring attention to something that maybe a lot of people don't know about, as is the case with CASC. Yeah, uh, I think it's a really cool idea. And I actually didn't know much about CASC um, as, you know, the rare disease until I saw this, Jack. So definitely, you know, is working to raise awareness. I also really like the idea of using art to raise awareness. Um, I imagine many of our audience members can, you know, that resonates with many of our audience members, you know, this idea of using creativity to raise the voices of, of patients and things like that. And it's, it's kind of cool to actually take a look at the art. So I, I recommend everyone listening to take a look at some of the art pieces including included in this. I, I actually in particular really like the the puppet, the liacorn or the, the liacorn um, that was designed by the, I believe it was the Jim Henson Company's master puppet designer. So I think that was kind of cool to see. Absolutely. I, I love that one too. I like the skateboard as well. It was really good. Sort of a um, kind of an impressionistic uh, image of, of the of the liacorn liacorn um, on a skateboard, like really like that. But um, I learned something, you know, with these disorders. Um, and as you pointed out, Jack, there are less than 300 documented cases of the cask gene disorder worldwide. So it's going to be ex- exceedingly hard to get drug makers interested in this one. For comparison, about 20,000 children are diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy globally each year, which now has four FDA approved drugs. So because there's no quote unquote pot of gold at the end of the R&D rainbow, the two heads of this project, Kevin Kersey and Hitomo Kubo, are trying to give families the opportunity to raise awareness and money to push research and drug development forward understandably they they like a treatment for these kids and this this auction is truly a one of a kind effort it reminds me also of that bi fit unwearable collection as well as genentech's fashion show for people living with uh, spinal muscular atrophy so we've seen these efforts uh, being very successful um and those were two examples of uh, where big drug makers were already available in the case of bi and genentech but uh, i think you know Considering the parallel uh, movement of patient-funded rare disease therapeutic development, you know, this seems right, you know, like a really good, you know, smart move um, to, to tap into that. Alesha, what do you got next for us? Today, I'll be talking a little bit about TikTok patient influencers for diabetes. When you first search diabetes on TikTok, one of the first videos that pops up includes a catchy remake of Megan Trainer's Made You Look with lyrics inspired by living with diabetes. TikTok account at Sugarcoated Sisters, a musical duo that rewrites the lyrics of popular songs into comedic ballads, was inspired to recraft the hit into a made you look diabetic version. I could have my days come on. I could wear my insulin pump. But even with nothing on, I'm diabetic. Yeah, diabetic. Since then, other TikTok users have incorporated the song into their own videos, with TikToker Soph Mosca recently posting a video about National Diabetes Awareness Month that gained more than 2.2 million views. The videos offer a glimpse into a growing community on TikTok of patient influencers who use the platform to discuss living with what many call an invisible disease. 
Influencers with diabetes detail everything from their daily glucose monitoring to their diet plans to the more mundane moments where they take insulin shots. These patients even delve into some of the mental health issues that come along with diabetes as well. Given the significant prevalence of diabetes in the U.S., which affects more than 38 million people, it should be no surprise that plenty are engaging with this type of content on social media. Some of these diabetes some of these diabetes influencers on TikTok include Jillian Ripolone, who provides detailed explanations of how she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, type 1 Amy, who calls herself your type 1 diabuddy, and Charmaine Dominguez, a dietitian who posts about foods that can help reverse type 2 diabetes. Comments under many of their videos note that diabetic talk has taught people, including non-diabetics, so much a sign that patient influencers indeed have significant sway over health literacy. So this is another example, you know, as we've often discussed on this podcast of patient influencers gaining a lot of um, authority uh, on social media and competing with HCPs and doctors. Um, But there's also a lot of positives to it because they are building uh, big communities on social media that can be really helpful to people who have certain conditions. Yeah, Lesha, I loved you detailing the story here and obviously going through kind of the litany. You know, we have people that are of all different ages, backgrounds, they're individuals. There was the Krugers that really stood out to me in terms of a family living with diabetes. And I thought it was really interesting kind of what you alluded to there in terms of building a community and really being able to support one another, whether you have type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, whether you've been dealing with this your whole life or you've just been recently diagnosed, there is kind of this I want to say learning curve of like, this is how you live with it. And it's not this thing that's going to, you know, it's going to impact your life, certainly, but it's not going to take over your life. It's not going to keep you from being able to fill, fulfill yourself as your best self. And having recently gone to Dexcom's Warriors Dinner um, in recognition of World Diabetes Day, you know, Patty LaBelle, the Grammy Award winner was there as well. Um, Nick Jonas has been a supporter of the company. It, it was so interesting sitting there and hearing from these patients that all they want to do is be heard and support one another. And I think all these influencers that you highlighted in the piece really understand that as their mission is like, if I can provide some educational resources, that's great. But really, I just want to be a, a pat on the back, a, a shoulder to cry on, somebody to, to look to for support. So it was really interesting there. Here, here. I mean, uh, Lesha, oftentimes your TikTok stories raise concerns about the effect of misinformation on worsening the youth mental health epidemic and other serious issues. But this is a positive one. I think anything that shows ways that regular people are able to show how they've made the disease fit into their lives rather than people having to turn their whole lives around to accommodate what is a disease that needs to be treated often daily and has serious health consequences if, if neglected, that's, that's a positive thing. So I uh, really was uh, a very uh, encouraged to, to read about that. For our last story, we have a positive update. Listeners may recall that over the summer, as we were recording an episode, we found out that Bronnie James, the USC freshman, uh, McDonald's All-American and son of Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron James had suffered cardiac arrest at a basketball practice and collapsed on the court. Luckily, the 19-year-old was uh, resuscitated and eventually underwent surgery for an undiagnosed uh, genetic heart defect. And we have positive news to bring you here that he has been cleared to return to practice. 
He is expected to make a full return to basketball, both through practice and through uh, playing games. He had warmed up with teammates a few weeks ago, but now has been cleared to get back on the court. Obviously a very positive thing. I know that when we had had the initial conversation, we had talked about the controversies around you know different um, suggestions that there was any sort of malfeasance, conspiracy theories around why he had had cardiac arrest. But I know Lesha at the time, you had highlighted the fact that Cardiac arrest, while it's obviously serious and it's had renewed attention through DeMar Hamlin, through Bronny James, it's not unforeseen. There are instances where this happens with young athletes who are exerting themselves. Unfortunately, it happened uh, in this case. But luckily, he's been able to make a full recovery, which I know is what a lot of people in the cardiac community have been trying to advocate for is better response to these instances, but also the hope that people could get back to their normal lives afterwards. Yeah, we, we've definitely touched on this before, obviously, with DeMar Hamlin making the news uh, recently. Um, but it is, you know, an un, it's not unheard of, as you mentioned, Jack, for young athletes to um, potentially be faced with a cardiac arrest um, during practice, during a game, um, because of the sort of the the uh, physical pressure that's placed on them, you know, during, during games or being hit in a certain way. Um, so it's always good to see a positive story and seeing a young athlete recovering after a situation like this. You know, fortunately, we were able to see Damar Hamlin recover as well. So uh, definitely good news to, to hear that Ronnie James uh, recovered as well. And Mark, before I bring you into the conversation for your thoughts, I just wanted to include a quote from the James family. They were obviously ecstatic with the news. They had released a statement saying that they expressed their gratitude to the, quote, incredible medical team, the entire USC community, and especially the countless friends, family, and fans for their love and support fight on. So I think that they are you know, certainly encouraged by what's happened with Bronny James and anticipate brighter days ahead. Absolutely. I mean, I know for Lakers fans, it's been a tough start to the season as the team is off to a slow uh, beginning. But what's more important than health? And for LeBron James and family, you have to consider this the best news ever. You know, you know Bronny collapses from cardiac arrest from a, during a workout in July. He's diagnosed with a congenital heart defect. Whether that's enough for the conspiracy theorists out there, I, I hope so. But uh, he undergoes surgery and there's a very positive sign that he's on the mend. So uh, as you to point it out, we've seen this comeback story before, 10 months ago with DeMar Hamlin, you know, experiencing cardiac arrest during a, a MNF game. Um, and uh, he, uh, fortunately, as we know, made a full recovery and he remains on the active roster for the Bills. Uh, and, um, you know, it's he's now, as we've, as we've seen, a celebrity ambassador, as you wrote, Jack, for Abbott, you know, for other people with heart conditions. And a great reminder um, that, uh, you know, people with heart conditions can have a quote unquote comeback story of their own and, and that there are sil silver linings in life. So great story. Thanks for joining us in this week's episode of the MMNM podcast. Be sure to listen next week when we'll be joined by Cameron Black, a Kansas City-based sports journalist and the first blind basketball commentator on TV. That's it for this week. The MMNM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.